Welcome to the Mile 99 interview with your host, Jessica Harris, Mike Turner, and Greg Larkin. Enjoy this episode. We'll see you on the trails. See you out there. See you there. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Mile 99 interview. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Turner. As you know, the Mile 99 is a place to hang out with our like-minded, intelligent folks in our truck community, share our stories, successes, failures, training plans, deepest trail secrets. It's also the place to get the latest in the local race news, find out what's going on, where you can help, where you can run, all those good things. We record live on Zoom and on Facebook with one take, no breaks. So Unlike the trails, what's said here is recorded. It's on the record. The chat rooms are open. So cruise to them, hang out, ask questions, leave questions on Facebook or on Zoom. I'm joined by my favorite co-host, Jessica Harris and Greg Larkin. How's it going, Jess? It is really good. Um, my older two did soccer this season, and so we are done. And it feels really nice to have my kids all together um, in the evening and have early bedtimes adjusting to this very dark <laughs> evenings we've been having, but feeling good. And this weather is just phenomenal. I feel good running. Yeah, life's doing pretty good. How are you doing, Greg? Doing well. Still on a restricted exercise regimen for a few more weeks, but I'm happy about that. Actually, I've been doing a ton of walking and kind of enjoying that strangely so um but yeah after uh, i think after western states lottery i'll be able to start getting back out and do some light jogging and then maybe some cross training and gradually build up so i'm excited about that too and looking forward to the winter we've already had some snow up in the mountains i'm really anxious to get on the skis so we shall see um <laughs> that's kind of the plan for for the winter so Jess, I think uh, I'll get to the the Patreon and all that, but there's uh, a new form that we uh, just went live with, I believe. Is that right? Yes, we did. So those super duper cool hats that we saw Mike wearing during Rio are now available for pre-order. We have a handful that can ship out right away. We have black and orange. So we're really excited. So we'll drop the Google Doc, sign up for however many you want. We'll get them to you guys. A little bit of each hat will go into our fund. And we always use our funds for community projects and making making sure we keep the lights on around here. So we really appreciate you guys. And you can twin Mike after Rio. How is How are you feeling, Mike, after Rio? Feeling good. Uh, you know, I mean, I, that, I took some risk. I went hard and fast, uh, ill-advised on the first part. <laughs> Because uh, I'm new at this, and just to see, I wanted to see what is that really? Is that just talk? Are they saying it really actually turned out to be important? Uh, my quads were just jacked, ankles were jacked. Like by mile 30, I was like, my body was done. But I, I pushed through. Yeah, I didn't get a PR, but I, with the rain, I finished. Feels pretty good. Proud you of you on that tenth buckle, my friend. That was a big win for me. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, it's been uh, quite the year. And, uh, you know, we've been doing a lot here at the podcast. Hopefully you've all been enjoying it. Um, and we also do want to say, you know, thanks to all of our Patreon members and other people who've been contributing through Venmo and PayPal and just other support uh, uh, that everyone's been giving to us. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, we do want to thank our newest Patreon member, Melissa. We really appreciate your support. 
Um, like I mentioned, you can also donate through Venmo. We'll list all of the handles at the end of the show. Um, yeah, it just helps us uh, just keep this whole thing going and, and we hope you're uh, getting a lot out of it. So um, one of the things that we have been doing a little bit, and I hope you've enjoyed that, is giving you a little bit of community news and just to kind of talk about some of the things going on around this area and and, and more broadly. Uh, big thing right now, of course, being the Western States Lottery. It's open uh, until the 21st of November, so a few more days. And I just checked the ticket counts today. Highest ever for the past few years, over 40,000 tickets in the lottery, close to 7,000 entrants. Uh, we don't know what the final percentages are going to be in terms of how many tickets, you know, and what your percentage being pulled is, but we'll find that out when everything closes up and they post those numbers. Uh, so get ready for December 3rd at Placer High School, Western States Lottery in person. Uh, come out if you're in the lottery. It definitely is your benefit to get there in person. You get that extra bonus drawing at the end of the playing cards. Uh, so hopefully a ton of people will show up there. Um, one thing also, uh, just to note, in this area, um, as of November 4th, so a few weeks ago, uh, the Tahoe National Forest, um, the forest rangers up there, the Forest Service reduced the closure area impacted by the mosquito fire. And that is now published on their, or the revised map is published on their Facebook page. So if you go to the Tahoe National Forest Forest Service Facebook page, uh, look for their post on November 4th. That'll give you the new um, perimeter uh, for the closure and it's reduced from what it was. So they've they've improved things out there. Uh, we've had some people out there doing some trail work. In fact, there's going to be a couple of trail work days coming up on the 3rd and 4th of December. And let me see where the other one is here. Uh, I'm missing it right at the moment here, but there are a couple this, of- This weekend, I'm out, I'm going out Saturday. This weekend, okay. Saturday and Sunday. Awesome. All right, oh yeah, it's right there, right in bold, right below where I'm trying to read. So November 19th and 20th, and December 3rd and 4th. And so you can sign up for those on WSER.org, the Western States uh, website. And uh, we've got a lot of people out there and Mike will be out there. So come on out. Uh, the trail needs a lot of work, obviously, after the fire. Uh, coming after that, we've got a bunch of races uh, queued up. So we've got the uh, run for Mandarin's 5 and 10K in Auburn on the 20th of November. Uh, single track running also uh, traditionally is doing their uh, their 5 and 10K wild turkey race on November 24th in Auburn. Quad Dipsy, um, this is a race that is just historically significant out there um, on the coastal area, 24 or 28.4 miles. So you're basically doing two, uh, well, yeah, four traversals of the Dipsy Trail, seven miles each way. So two out and backs starting in Mill Valley. And that race, yeah, if you've ever been on that trail, you know that one's going to be tough. So that's a great way to kind of wrap up the end of the year with an ultra uh, on some just fantastically historic trails out there. Uh, I mentioned the lottery coming up the day after the lottery, California International Marathon, December 4th, Sacramento. It's going to be a huge turnout, great day. And Fleet Feet is going to be running a 5K, a free 5K run and walk uh, also in December, and then we have the uh, single track running Christmas run 5K December 18th in Auburn. So there's just tons of races going on in Auburn. Then they're going to put on the resolution run January 1st. Great one. Uh, get your medals to spell out the, the word Auburn six years. Uh, and I think this year might be the fourth or fifth year uh, letter. So it's it's getting there. It's almost complete. 
Total Body Fitness is also running a New Year's duathlon and 5K run walk on January 7th, Balsam Lake, Inside Trails, has a no hands 8K, half, 35K, and 50K January 7th. If you're in shape for a 50K in January, go for that one for sure. And then we just start really rolling into like the season. And believe it or not, like February is the beginning of the big season. (laughs) So Jed Smith, Sacramento, all distances up to 50 miles, formidable one mile all the way up to 50K. That's a huge one around here, February 17th, 18th in Auburn. And then you've got Salmon Falls after that. And then it just goes from there. So we'll be talking about all those. Um, And then we just have like a general note here. We've had some friends of the show out um, doing some really amazing hikes, uh, seeing some pictures from people, obviously tons of um, people down in the Grand Canyon this year. But then if you've seen what's called the Wave, Coyote Buttes North out in Utah, it's just an unbelievable geological formation. I'm sure Mike could uh, talk a lot about how it was made. Um, and this thing, uh, you got to see it to believe it. I mean, the pictures are one thing, but I'm sure in person it's another. They have a lottery. You can go out and uh, do advanced lottery reservations and then get picked. But you also, they also have like a daily lottery for ones that haven't been claimed. So things like that, other places you might need to go uh, down in Yosemite. These are the times to start thinking about next year and what you might need to do to uh, to get to these amazing places. So a lot of stuff going on, even in the quote off season. So that's it for community news. Thank you, Greg. I think it's a really important that we start getting those permits. Um, people need them and good reminders to do it early plan your next year already. So thank you for that. Tonight though, we are chatting with local legend, Ken Krause. And if you know Ken, you know him as a quiet and unassuming kind of guy. He's always hanging out at some race in a temporary portable ham shack, reporting that you've just passed through his aid station with a big old smile. But after tonight, you'll have a totally different respect for him. Who else do you know has run 22 AR-50s, 24 way too cools, uh, 17, 17 Camel Pot um, Headlands 50K, and he's also a USMC veteran, served in Saigon, and is now back there embracing the country, the people, and running the most challenging courses in the world. You are in for a treat tonight. We all are. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks, Jess. Great to be here. Really appreciate the introduction. Yeah, I mean, tonight is going to be jam-packed, so let's just get right into it. What we like to do on the show is we like to know what you were doing when you were in diapers. So take us all the way back, and where were you born, and where'd you grow up? I was born over in Woodland, so I'm a local local person, and uh, grew up in Woodland, Freeman Elementary, yay, yay, and uh, Lee Junior High School, um, and then Woodland Wolves graduated in uh, 1973. And uh, my dad was a uh, elementary school teacher in uh, in uh, Woodland, and so that's that's why we stayed we stayed right there. And then um, right after high school in June of '73, I uh, joined the Marine Corps. And so, in elementary school or middle school, any of that time, were you active? Was your family active? Any sports that you want to talk about? No, not really. I um, I liked I did some intramural stuff and things like that. I uh, was more into the drama. I was actually uh, a thespian in high school. That was a lot of fun. We did um, Hello Dolly and uh, Fiddler, Man Who Came to Dinner, and um, quite a few others. That was a pretty fun time. And I was in the band for a year playing the uh, trumpet. We uh, 
enjoyed going down with 200 and some odd people to the Chinese New Year's parade in San Francisco and just blowing the side, just blowing off the side of those buildings and uh, did a lot of other things like that that were non, uh, really non-athletic. Did you do marching band though? Yep, that was the, that was the thing as a freshman. And then I uh, traded my trumpet in for a guitar my sophomore year. Um, I would say that that is pretty physical. I see what marching band people do and they're out there holding a trumpet, walking the streets of San Francisco. I would say that's pretty active. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. We had um, the tuba players were probably a little bit uh, more challenging because back in the 60s, they were big targets for firecrackers and M80s that are getting thrown in from all over the place. And so um, that was, uh, I still remember the Chinese New Year's parade, those being one of my uh, big highlights from uh, from that part of my life. That was, that was fun. Did you do it a couple years in a row, every year in high school? I just did my freshman year and then um, decided that I would rather play guitar and other things than um, play trumpet in the band with with the uniform on. And so I picked up a uh, an acoustic guitar after that and played guitar for a couple of years, um, just in high school, kind of at our church and things like that. And then um, kind of gave that up when I, after graduating from high school. Is your family musical? Did anyone else play instruments? No, uh, my dad played the accordion and he could play piano as well by ear. Everything in the key of C, but he could play anything. <laughs> but he played the accordion and uh, that accordion actually is with, uh, is still owned by one of my cousins. And uh, so that was, that was fun. My mom was kind of the, choir director in the church and my dad led the singing on Sunday mornings and so there was a lot of music in our family growing up um, mostly um, the church related old hymns and things like that but it was a it was a lot of music. So you definitely had a community supporting your interests which I think is really interesting and fun. So high school you made it through. What, what was next? Um, right after high school a couple weeks later I joined the Marine Corps and um, went down to San Diego for boot camp and then spent a year on Okinawa with the 3rd Marine Division. Um, the Western Pacific then was just a general um, operational area because there was this was uh, while Vietnam was still winding down. And so we were touring up and down the coast of Vietnam and into the Philippines and down to Singapore and Hong Kong. And so we bounced all over the Western Pacific. And then I came home on Thanksgiving Day of 1974, and then uh, a month later reported into the Embassy Guard School program in Washington, D.C., and then uh, that's what took me to Saigon. So I turned around and hit Saigon in February of 75 and uh, was there for about 60 days leading up to the evacuation of the American Embassy. And... Uh, from there, went to Manila for a couple of weeks and then to Asmara, Ethiopia. That's now the uh, capital of Eritrea. Stayed there through the end of 1975 and then um, was in Brussels, Belgium for about a year and a half before coming home. And I got I left the Marine Corps in June of 77 and then started night school that September. So why did you jump into the Marine Corps? Um, kind of a variety of reasons, but it seemed like a good decision. Um, I don't, I was probably somewhat immature and wouldn't really have done that well in college. Plus I had a, a older sister that was already in school and 
you know, money was a little tight and things like that, but I was uh, probably not really ready to settle down and crack the books like that. So it was a, um, a good decision. And um, the Marine Corps was really the only choice. Um, always liked the uniform, those dress blues that the Marines have are, you know, are uh, probably the best uniform in the, in the entire military. I think so too. And so how long from when you graduated high school, how long were you gone for? Um, I was out, I was overseas for um, almost all of the four years. I was only in, in stateside for boot camp and a couple of training schools. And other than that, I was overseas the whole time. I was over um, something, something on the order of three years, four months and 17 days or whatever it says on my discharge papers. And I hit 33 different countries over the course of four years, went around the world once, halfway around twice. So um, by the time my four years was up, it was time to get out and uh, come home. And so then you transitioned. I mean, I you were like not uh, in any sports and then you went to boot camp. I hear that's hard. <laughs> and so how did you kind of get through that and then keep serving. You know, you weren't maybe the most into sports and kind of running. And then you got thrown into- I was still, although I wasn't fit the way that we think of fitness now and running and all those kind of things, I I wasn't overweight or anything. And Mm -hmm. so um, I was 5'10", 155 pounds. And I went to boot camp with a bunch of guys that were a lot bigger than me and a lot more out of shape. Um, and you kind of take it one day at a time. I mean, it was a 90 day program or whatever it was. And you just kind of go from one, um, one exercise to the next. And by the end of it, you're running a pretty good three mile, um, run and doing pull-ups like crazy and doing sit-ups like crazy, but it was very, very focused. Um, if you have the body type for it, it, um, was real helpful. Um, I could do pull-ups, um, pretty well at the time, which was a big, point score in the physical fitness programs where a lot of guys that were bigger and, you know, looked a lot more athletic, you know, their, their weight was an issue against them and on the chin up bar. So. so you had something going for you. <laughs> Natural physique got you through boot camp. You traveled a lot. It seems like, well, yeah. did in three and a half years or so. Um, what was your favorite part of that it seemed really fast paced, like how you're talking about it. It seems like you were always going and from, you know, somewhere where you were born and bred in Woodland. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm all over the world. How, how was that transition? It was also kind of a one day at a time thing, but I was talking to somebody the other day and it was interesting to kind of, you know, take a look at my birthdays throughout those four years because they were really all over the place. And my, my first one was, um, in an infantry training program. A year later, I was on Okinawa. A year later after that, I was in um, Ethiopia. And my 21st birthday was on a train going across London to visit some friends in Ireland. Um, And, you know, the the next year I was in, as in night school, going to college. And so it was a real busy time. Um, At the, in the moment of it, it really didn't think about it all that much. It was just kind of how life was going on. Life was going on fast, but it was just how it was. You didn't really, really get a chance to sit back and, you know, reflect on it. 
Yeah, that's really a busy time. And so you get home. Did you come back to Woodland? Or is your family still here? Yeah, um, I did. I um, I was considering going to college. I was actually accepted to go to Cal Poly, and I went down there to to look at Cal Poly. And what I saw were really small dorm rooms and having to live on campus for my first year. And at the time, I was almost 22 and had been through quite a bit in the previous four years. And the idea of living with a bunch of kids that had just gotten out of high school really wasn't in the cards. So I, I came back to Woodland um, and met with a gentleman that had been one of my high school teachers, Fred Stone. And I um, sat down with him and told him what I was thinking about. He said, why don't you um, think about going to night school and get a job? And so I I took a job at uh, Western Title Insurance in Woodland where I had I had done after school work in high school. And that kind of started a whole career path of doing some uh, essentially real estate research for uh, most of my career. So did you, where do you live now? Are you in Woodland still? No, I'm, I'm in Folsom. Um, oh, okay. I, you haven't moved though. I mean, not far away. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I lived in Woodland until 1998. Then I got a small apartment in um, Sacramento. And then Ellen and I met in October of, or September of 99. We got married three and a half months later and uh, surely had the house that we live in now. And so we're just over behind the outlet mall in Folsom. Mm -hmm. So fill us in from you got home, got a job, kind of settled, settled in, and then you started running. Where, where did that come from? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, there's a whole lot of life that kind of took place between 1977 and 92. And, um, there are a lot of ups and downs. And I just had to kind of in 1992, I was at a point in my life where I really needed to make a decision on how I was going to live the next 30 or 40 years. And um, like a lot of a lot of runners, um, you know, I had a history of not really treating my body that well. And, uh, you know, so I um, decided that running would be a good thing to do. And I um, and I had a history of it from the from the Marine Corps, only it was pretty much never running more than three miles at a time. And so I went out and um, I was, I decided I wanted to, I know what it was. I, I was reading a magazine, a Leatherneck magazine is a Marine Corps publication. And it had an article in it about the Marine Corps marathon. And I started looking through the results and realized that some of the people in the results were actually older than me. And I was 35 at the time or 36 or something. And so I thought, well, I got maybe do that. And so I was driving down Madison Avenue and happened to uh, pass the Fleet Feet store when it was on Madison and went in. And I remember meeting Bob Bustabade that day. And Bob was a really good triathlete at the time. And and uh, I was just some dude walking in off the street. And, and Bob sat down with me and got me into a pair of, uh, of uh, Pegasus running shoes and uh, gave me a book of Galloway's book of running and said, don't run a step until you finish the book. Cause it really had a lot of good, good advice on it. So I, um, I did that. And uh, I remember still going out. My first run was two miles. I was really impressed with myself. And uh, one thing led to another. And the end of 92, I went down to San Francisco and ran a, a, a New Year's Eve run that was at the Presidio and was sharing that with some friends back east. And 
it, so that would have been in early 93. And the, my friends back east, um, I, unbeknownst to me, were Western States um, alums and had some buckles. And they said, well, why are you running on the streets when you're living in Northern California? You ought to be on trails. I said, well, I don't know anybody. And I just, you know, and they said, well, I'll give you two names and two phone numbers. You just call these people up, volunteer, and you'll start meeting people and you'll start um, learning the trails. And the two names that she gave me was Delmar Freilich, who was then the director of AR50 and Norm Klein. And uh, so my first trail experience was working the last gas bait station at um, AR50. And uh, I thought that was just the most incredible experience ever. I went home and found the, uh, there used to be a paper publication of the races. And I, the very next day, there was a, a running event that Dave Horning was putting on with EnviroSports down on uh, Angel Island. So I went down and ran Angel Island as my first trail run. Yeah, you know that that advice of how do you get started? Well, volunteer. That's still that's that advice is still good today. How do you get involved? You start volunteering, you meet people, and you know, and alongside with your running, and you, I mean, everyone knows you these days as a radio guy. You know, you're volunteering over the years, evolved. So you're that's how everybody knows you now. Is you're always in some portable ham shack and some race somewhere. So how when did you get into uh, radio, or how did your volunteering evolve into radio? Um, I was the I was the uh, coordinator for the Western States uh, Safety Patrol team for about a decade. I got involved with the teams in 2002 and was involved with them until 2016. And um, it was in 2015 when um, Craig Thornley asked that we add amateur radio or ham radio to the safety patrol team. And so that's when I first got my license. And it was a couple of years after that, that it was time for me to step away from the um, safety patrol role. And so we handed that off to Keenan Matz and Keenan um, has really done incredible with it. But um, January of 2018, then uh, Joe Steinmetz invited me to join the radio team and and get involved with some of the um, technical aspects of of how they do runner reporting and so that's been incredible joe's just one of the greatest teachers out there and um then with the uh, once covid really hit and shut everything down one of the things i found is that it didn't shut down some of the races that were out of the area and so that's when i started traveling with the and got, getting in touch with some of the other radio teams and i Went, went out to work Bear um, 100 a couple times and um, a few other events like that. Well, I ran the Bear because it happened during COVID. Right. That's why I ran it that year because it was one of the only races that are, were happening. So, in fact, for the record, I'm a new ham technician and so is Greg Larkin. So two yeah. of the three hosts are actually now ham radio license holders. Well, well, we'll line up a couple of Jess's kids and uh, they'll get their license first and then he'll embarrass moms. So she'll have to get hers. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, looking at your race history, and we're going to get into second half of the show. We're going to get into talking about the big races, which are, you know, talking about Vietnam and how you ended up over there. And a couple of the big races, the Vietnam Trail Marathon and the Vietnam Mountain Marathon. And so after and a little bit we're going to jump into those, but real quick, locally here, when I was, I like to go through Ultra Sign Up and kind of 
jot down the years of people who did. And it, just, it was like endless years. I mean, I was going through AR-50 22 times, starting from 97. And we had a cool, I don't know anybody that has repeatedly done those races year after year after year. And on top of those, you have all the other great races, a bunch of cool stuff, you know, Miwok and Silver State and Quad Dipsy and just some great races, obviously Western States and three times, congrats on those. And thank you. 98 and 03 and 09. So out of all those races, what stands out as your, your most memorable or, you know, races, I guess. What? Absent the stuff I've done more recently in Vietnam, I think from that group, um, the Tamalpa Headlands 50K to me was always one of just a just a great event. Um, and I, yeah, Western States, you know, that's that's a whole journey just by itself. But I used to really enjoy going back to Headlands 50K each year. Just a, it, it's no longer put on. It kind of was a victim of COVID, and then some of the other things that took place, but I uh, had a, I've, you mentioned I'd, I'd finished AR and, and cool more than 20 times. Well, the third 20 that I wanted was to finish Tamalpa Headlands 20 times. And there's another guy over there, Steve Jaber, that's um, was also kind of in that same thing. And so we were, we were always um, kind of challenging each other to to get those things finished and we we're both heading to 20 when it when it collapsed we we both even dnf the same year one time it was uh one of those, one of those challenging courses but it was such a old school event it had um no big nothing big about it it was 250 people a giant loop it finished down at rodeo beach and picnic tables and ice chest full of beer and that was uh that was about it. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah. Where, there's a lot of races out there these days, but the depth of those old school races are is fascinating to hear about. And uh, I, I actually have an idea. The after show, I want to bring up my new business venture, but it'll be in the after show. There you go. Anyway, so before we jump into Vietnam, I want to. Vietnam is a very wet race. We're going to post a video of of the, the Vietnam Mountain Marathon, and it starts with pouring rain, but. To lead into that, I want to tell you about, I've done some races this year in the rain, and this episode is sponsored by Njinji. They're the innovator in the original performance toe socket. So, you know, I love my Njinjis. I probably got 20 pair now. I just got a couple new pair of the wool, the merino wool blend, which I'm just, I'm just loving them. They're nice for the winter, a little warmer and uh, really good wicking. But anyway, I've done a couple of races in the rain this year and I've been working on how to, you know, how to handle my feet and the foot care. So I've been playing with tape and I think I got it figured out. But in Gingy has always been a, a, a very tried and true way to cut down on blisters that and with the right lube. So, you know, uh, I would recommend that they have the Ecomade uh, moisture wicking fibers, the five finger toe design. You know, you change your socks out during a pouring rain, maybe every 25 miles, and your feet will be perfect, and they'll take it into the, into the race. So whether you're running in the rain in Vietnam, hiking somewhere in the headlands or hitting the gym mm -hmm. for everyday use, your feet take a beating, and they deserve to be treated well and to be pampered. So treat your feet to the comfort of Njinji toe socks. If you visit uh, the mile, the Njinji.com backslash mile 99, mile 99 one word you can put your email on there you'll grab a, your 15 discount 
and use it at checkout. So thank you for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, I definitely love those. Uh, they work for me. So we're going to get into Vietnam now. And so you mentioned, you know, you were in the Marine Corps in 73 to 77, and you, uh, you, you ended up in the embassy in Saigon. So, you know, you told me a story a while back, how you, how you, how, how you kind of came full circle. You were a young, a young boy, young man in Vietnam fighting. And then you're now, you know, a couple of years later, now you're back there running and you, you met this guy. You told me about this guy you met that you're friends with these people that were on the opposing side. Yeah. That, um, relate that. I'll try to edit it down to, for, for, for brevity, but I was, um, in 2004, I was on a medical dental team where they needed somebody that could hold a dental tray still. That was kind of my qualifications to join the team. And so, so I uh, got involved with these teams and we'd go over to Cambodia um, primarily. And then one year they uh, decided to come to Vietnam and that was my first return trip to Vietnam. And so I, I really enjoyed um, being there. I didn't realize just how, um, how much it had impacted my life. And so I, I started coming back. And on one trip, I decided to um, sign up to go see the tea plantations that are up in the high country. And kind of behind that is that those are the areas where the Marines um, served during the, the, the more strenuous parts of the war. Um, and this was all stuff that I'd heard about in boot camp, but I'd never been up there when I was in Vietnam as a 19 year old. So I I was up there, I guess I was 60 at the time, and I I was, uh, we were driving up into the hills, and the lady who was my tour guide decided that we needed to stop and greet this old man because he was a village um, elder, and it was, it was a matter of respect that we always stop in and see him, and so we did, and he kept looking at me without, uh, without he couldn't figure out how to bring the subject up, and finally he figured out how to ask the question. And he asked it as, how old was I when I first went to Vietnam? And I said I was 19 and I'd served in the Marine Corps. And with that, it kind of changed the, um, the dynamics of the conversation. He, is a, he, had been a, he had served in the North Vietnamese Army and had been heavily wounded in a, in a battle with the Marines. But um, the Marines found him after the battle and took care of him. They actually evacuated him off to a medical, off to a hospital ship and then he uh, recovered and he moved back to the town where he was. He had served while he was in the North Vietnamese Army, and he credits the Marines for saving his life. And so even, and so there's some pictures that I have I had taken with him, and it really kind of um, is part of a lifelong reconciliation, um, a reconciliation process of kind of coming to terms with how things were in the. 60s and 70s compared to how they are now. It's it's amazing to return to a peaceful Vietnam where people don't hate you, for example. That was one of my first um, eye openers. It was like, gosh, these people don't really hate us. And so I kept kind of pushing the envelope and traveling more and more and and uh, eventually ended up in some of these running events. Yeah, and uh, and Greg will drop a, a link to the YouTube video of the uh, the Vietnam Mountain Marathon just posted their recent video, and it's really amazing. And you talk about the, the tea plantations, and uh, you know, I've never been over there, but you see this in, in like movies and shows and magazines. But it's 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 real. It's so amazing the pictures and the vistas, and 
So you, when did you, so you, uh, when did you first do, was the, was the Vietnam Trail Marathon the first one you did? Yeah, the, um, it actually kind of goes back a few years. Um, and I had heard about the event back in 2017. And um, then I had other tra- trouble that I'd already kind of pre-booked. And so um, I knew I was going to be doing the one in the Vietnam Mountain Marathon in September of 2020. And a uh, friend and I were going to be traveling over in the area um, in the spring. And we looked at it and, and all of a sudden I saw that Vietnam Trail Marathon was was being offered. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of cool. If nothing else. I, I knew that Vietnam Mountain Marathon was going to be very challenging. So I wanted to go over and um, meet with the race of management group and kind of see how they put events on and things like that because you know I've seen a lot of races here but it's it's interesting to see how people do things in in other um in other places like that and it was it was quite um quite interesting but it gave me a lot of confidence then coming back in September because the the folks at Topaz Travel and Topaz Explorer group that that are the race group really do an incredible job and um there's nothing that you would lack as a runner going to these events. Yeah, the, so the July is when the Vietnam Trail Marathon is, and the little on the website it says it takes place in. How do you, do you speak Vietnamese? Is it Mok Chau? Mok Chau. It's um, that's that was in May of this year, and next year it's actually going to be in January. So if somebody's interested ah. in going over. Right after the first of the year, it'll be when the um, plums are are in bloom, which is yeah. kind of a nice thing. It's Mukchaw is also where they just opened a new glass bridge, and so there's this bridge that's maybe as six feet wide or so like that. But it's a it's a glass thing, so you can look through it, and it's it's got a new Guinness Book of Records, so you can you can Google glass bridge in Vietnam, and you'll see all these pictures, and it's wow. it's bigger than the than the Forest Hill Bridge. This wow. thing sits over a huge canyon. You're walking down there and you're looking down. <laughs> yeah, you can see in the backgrounds, you know, just from a geomorphic perspective as a geologist, I'm always surprised how how vertical and steep a lot of the topography is out there. Oh, it's, it's, a different, it's just uh, a very different uh, geomorphology, I guess to put it. But the race has, uh, the distances are 1K, 21K, 42, and 70. Right, which is forty-three miles, and the the forty-three mile one has ten thousand feet of vert. So it, it goes through these hidden villages and places that you can't get to by car. There's no car access in these places: orchards, tea fields, jungle, farmland. Uh, it sounds pretty amazing and well supported by the community. The locals are are like line the course. It's pretty. It sounds like pretty spectacular. Yeah, the, and um, these are pretty challenging. Vietnam Trail Marathon for me was 10 hours and 17 minutes to go 42 kilometers. You know, that's, that's pretty slow by anybody's marathon. And I see Greg kind of chuckle over there. Yeah, that's, that's a, that was actually my personal worst marathon in terms of time. Is that called a PW? Is that a PW? That's a PW right there. You know, 10, 17, I, you know, I owned it, but I looked around and I was just under the 50th percentile. And meaning there was half the field was behind me. And I, I wasn't aware of it at the time because I was you know, pretty spread out. Um, and the conditions in May was just horrendous. I was, there was a, one of the big climbs on that 
course, I got towards the top. I was maybe only 20 or 30 feet from, from the top, but it was so steep that I was literally on all fours in a slick mud environment and making no progress. I mean, it was just the most frustrating. I probably, if you, I'll have to show you one of these days my uh, my splits because I think that one just <laughs> and pace chart just goes right down the thing when you're laying on the ground trying to figure out how you can move forward and it just yeah, doesn't work. <laughs> it, it has a new definition to a negative split because you're actually losing time. You're going backwards. Well, I was concerned that if I stood up, I'd, I'd slide back down the hill and there'd be no no way to stop it. It's it'd be like taking training hill or K two and and take the steepest part of that and and level it off so it's there's no ruts or anything and turn it into just nothing but a mud flat and then add a river and then you're yeah. set <laughs> so the so the Vietnam mountain marathon is listed as september yeah it was um it's like the third weekend in september and then it says it's uh it goes through the mountain range of are you going to take this national park as no. a <laughs> Hong Ling National Park, uh, I don't know, near Sapa. Yeah, uh, It says it's usually a closed area, but it's open during the race. So through villages and rice terraces and bam over bamboo bridges, past yeah. water buffalo, and uh sounds pretty amazing as well. Yeah, it's it's some up and down. I I improved on my on my PW though, and and uh what did I do? Oh, 1347 for a marathon. <laughs> Nice. And, and so they, <laughs> and it's, they have um, they have mandatory gear requirements. And when you um, check in and get your bib, you, you're going to be asked, is your and on race day, they will really impress upon you. Do you have all your mandatory gear? And it's assumed that that you have it if you tell them you do. And if you don't, they've got stuff that you can throw in your bag. But it's a it's a marathon that starts at six in the morning. Where the mandatory gear includes headlamps. <laughs> yeah. So, do you need to speak Vietnamese to be to? Is this no. a race where you need to, like, if I'm going to travel there, what do I need to know? Um, not much. I don't speak any Vietnamese other than I mean, I can pronounce some of. I have a hard time with people's names even over there, which is is always you know it's kind of embarrassing because the a lot of the um, sounds aren't sounds that are typical to the um to the way that we speak and so it's a it's a real challenge but i i get by um english is is a real universal language and and it's taught in the in the schools there and, and everything i over half the runners over half the vietnamese runners certainly speak english very well and going into aid stations it's just um you know it's just food and drink um the aid stations are set up a little bit different. They have water and, and um, uh, sports drinks. But um, one of the differences over there is that they have you bring some small change with you. And and uh, you can buy things along the way in some of the villages that you go through. So you pick up extra Cokes that way and, and some sports drinks and things. And it's a, way to, it's a way to kind of support the local communities as well. These are small villages. I mean, just you know, a few houses that were going by. But the, way website, out. the website for the record, it actually has some uh, travel packages. So yeah. I think they make it pretty easy. You can go there. They have travel packages. So if you need to figure it out, you can, one, you can message Ken, but two, you can go to the website and, you know, kind of, they make it easy, it looks like, to kind of get over there. Yeah, the, the way they set it up, um, 
you fly into Hanoi and your travel package for the race includes bus transportation back and forth to Hanoi. That's about six and a half hour bus ride. It includes four days and three nights in a host hotel there. It includes the race and transportation back and forth from the race back to the hotel areas for like $200. I mean, you, you can't even get the bus ticket for that here and much less the, the race. I mean, you take a, a any race here that's going to take you 13 or 14 hours to complete. It's probably going to be something north of $300 just for the race. But over there, it's it's all this other stuff rolled into one. And, and uh, so from a price standpoint, it's really good. And it's not that, you know, it's, yeah, it's a big hop, but a lot of people will go over there and make a nice vacation out of it because from... Hanoi, you can fly any place in the country for less than $50, pretty much. I mean, it's two hours to get down to Saigon, and it's like $50 or $40. It's just because of the way they've they priced their airline tickets. So so back to the gear real quick. A couple of questions okay. from the chat. Uh, Bruce Wynn, which he's interested in the show because you know, he, he is from there. So, But do, do they check the gear periodically, or do they just – like, is there checkpoints or, or is it only required on a certain half of the race? No, it's it's actually on the honor system, but they just really hammer on it, the, the importance of having, having it. And um, I'm sure there were probably some of the local people who are real familiar with the courses and stuff like that. Maybe they don't. Um, I know one of the things that was mandatory was a rain jacket, and I had one that was probably a little heavier than I needed. Um, but... Certainly, I think next year when I go back, I'm going to take some better lights with me. And um, I, I think that was probably about the only thing that I would change. Plus, I'll have my, light, my rain jacket next year will be a little lighter. Um, How about some mud crampons? <laughs> um, Vietnam Mountain Marathon was a little slippery, but not like it was at, at Trail Marathon. Um, you could probably take stuff like that. Nobody would. But the bigger thing is that its importance is trekking poles. Um, I didn't have trekking poles with me when I went to the event and the trail marathon, but mountain marathon, I took them. And I, I don't know how I would have gotten through it without them. There, the, the terrain is so steep in places and you're stepping down, you know, going crossways across rice fields. And it's all terrace farming areas. So these some of the step downs are are on the order of two and a half to three feet um, in heavily eroded areas, you know, and on the other side, it's stepping up those same kind of slopes. Um, so it's, it's something you just got to be kind of geared up for. And I, um, when I travel over there, I've got some friends now and we'll, we'll line up some, um, some day hikes to get to do some trail familiarity and things like that. And so it's, uh, it's a trip I'm already looking forward to returning on. That's absolutely fantastic, Ken. Uh, thanks for you know telling us about that. I mean, this is one of those events that maybe a lot not a lot of people have heard about. Um, and one of the things I'm curious about is you know you going over there as a veteran and having been there and served there. Um, do you have other veterans that you've either encountered there and formed relationships with through that race or at other races? And can you kind of talk about is is there a community of of connections there just with other veterans? Um, not really. I um, at 67 years old, I was the third oldest finisher at Vietnam Mountain Marathon, and I was the oldest finisher and at Vietnam Trail Marathon. 
Um, the most common question that I get on the race is how old am I? And when I tell them, everybody goes, so that's my dad's age. <laughs> and so I've encountered some Vietnam, uh, some other American veterans over there who, who live there. But one of the challenges right now is that the Vietnamese government has essentially um, um, done away with, with uh, retirement visas and things like that. Um, you almost have to be married to Vietnamese to to live there now. Um, but I met a I've met a few Americans who are married to uh, Vietnamese ladies and and are living there um, that are veterans. Um, it's just a, where they live and how they're they're doing. Um, you see more veterans, I suppose, that when you're down in the major cities like like down in Saigon and Da Nang, but not so much out the out in the jungles like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's just a, a fantastic um, you know thing to see your longevity, and, and I guess the other thing that I'm I'm curious about, just having completed the number of races, as Mike said, you know, and we've all sort of checked out your ultra sign up, and um, what types of advice? I mean, could you give to people sort of starting out, or even people like me have been doing this for a few years? Like, I'm sure there's plenty to learn. I mean, are there any kind of nuggets that you've sort of distilled? throughout the number of years you've been racing and, and that you like to impart to people? I think really to listen to your body and don't try to overdo things. I I ran my first ultra in 1996 and a week or two before it, um, Tim Tweetmeyer was speaking at the Napa Marathon and I didn't know anything about running, but I, I knew Tim from having volunteered some at Western State. So I went over to Napa to hear what he was saying. and and one of the things Tim was talking about was um, taking as many rest days as there were miles in an event. And maybe in 96, that's a little bit different than it is now. But he was talking about, this is when he was winning Western States and stuff, but he was talking about taking all of July off and then maybe doing a little camping and, and things like that in August and starting to jog again in September. And he was, he would go to quad as like his first serious run after western states so getting that long recovery into it um i had a hamstring injury really bad and that kind of kept me on the sidelines all of 2021 i was 2021 was my first year of not running an ultra since 96 and um but one of the things i found was um the amount of time i'd spend in the gym on some of the elliptical equipment and i'd work with a heart rate monitor so I could still get the, the same aerobic workout that I could do for sustained periods of time, 35, 45 minutes at a really high level. And it still kept the fitness level up so that when I did go back to Vietnam and work in some of these things, I did I hadn't lost my ability to climb and to, and to walk aggressively. Um, I was, I was, the other one was, was a Vietnam mountain marathon was the ability to run downhill because the downhill stretches, I was I was going by people there that were walking backwards, bent over, holding their quads. And mm-hmm. we had a four kilometer downhill and you're barely walking. That's that's not a good thing. But um, a lot of it is just, you know, is listen to your body. And if, if you've got to call a timeout, take a timeout. I mean, if that timeout is two or three months, it just doesn't matter. It's about the journey. It's and that's life's journey. It's not about even so much as one season or one race. Um, that you just can't put that. You know, I can 
and kind of see it, you know, if it's Western states where you're one of 7,000 people that are trying to get in, you might you might push the envelope a little bit there. But in, in other events, um, you know, you just you really have to listen to your body. And if, it's, if it says time to stop, you got to stop. Yeah. Otherwise, you're you won't you know, I, you, I can sit there and look at a lot of guys over the last 20, 30 years that have, have really tried to push it. And, you know, they're. They're, they they pushed it. Maybe they got through those races, but five or ten years later, they're no longer out there. And the rest, as well, the rest is also about the mental rest. You just you. I think we've all had those days where we go out there, we toe the line, and we're ready to go. We think we are, and five miles down the road, it's like I just don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. And that's where the mental rest. <laughs> I see Mike waving his hand. You know, and I've had those, um, but. But by giving yourself, you know, not over racing and you know, I don't do as many anymore, but there was, you know, the years that I was in Western States, for example, I do a, an ultra a month and that was you know, it's just part of the part of what we did. But you have to kind of, you know, at, at you know, and now in my mid and upper 60s, that's just not there anymore. I have to really think about what I'm going to do. And so if my target, for example, is is Vietnam Mountain Marathon. My race before that was two months prior and that was at. Tahoe Rim 55K that was I knew was going to be like 12 hours for me. And that's really what I was looking for was time on feet, not not how good of a time I could come in. And two months before that was Vietnam Trail. And then two months before that was was, you know, something else that was also kind of long in terms of time on feet. So it was just a build up on time on feet, not but it allowed me to get the Vietnam Mountain Marathon in, in good shape and, and able to um complete it essentially in the same percentile as before even that 1347 was just under the 50th percentile and i was really happy with that because you know you can look at my ultra signups and and i'm not a 50th percentile runner by any stretch of imagination mm. but I, uh, i'm glad to do it over there yeah i mean it's all great advice um you know i think a lot of us i mean we'd love to continue on and and be able to do these things for the long haul. I certainly would. I've been doing a variety of different sports most of my adult life. You know, I'd like to continue on. And as you said, though, things change. I mean, over over your time, and you may not be at that point racing an ultra every month. Uh, you know, at once you get to a certain age, and that's great. But you know, the, the journey is really the important thing too, as you said. So I really like that perspective a lot. Yeah, the, um, the radio also. I'll just follow up real quick with that. The, yeah. the radio really has allowed me to um, to stay participating in these events, but just in a different way. I've used radio to to go to you know Waldo to Pine to Palm, um, Kodiak Bear a couple times, San Diego. Um, I was supposed to be at Miwok last year, but ended up in Vietnam instead. But all those have radio teams, and so it gives me a chance to go and still be at these events, see people and and stay engaged, even though I'm not, you know, lacing up the lacing up the trail sneakers. Yeah, I can absolutely concur with that. I got an opportunity to work out at RDL a couple of weekends ago, first time ever. First time I even transmitted on a radio. Um, and it was very interesting in the sense that it felt good to be sort of involved in taking care of runners yeah you're, you're calling in for rides for people who are dnfing or you're calling for medical you know care things like that and it, it just like keeps you engaged but you're kind of helping people you know kind of achieve their goals so i really enjoyed that uh that part of it and just 
doing something different at a race instead of actually being in it for a change. <laughs> yeah, the the stuff I do at Robinson Flat, for example, for Western States is I get up there on Friday because it takes that long to set up everything because we have other antennas that we set up by the lookout tower and things. And and it's six o'clock on Saturday afternoon before I'm out of there. And, you know, this is a aid station that, you know, the cutoff time is like 1.50 in the afternoon. And it's still four and a half hours later before I get out of there. It's kind mm. of a camping trip, too. You get, get to hang out. And so, you know, something I enjoy doing. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I look forward to my next opportunity. And anybody out there that wants to get their ham license and get involved in that, absolutely check it out. Uh, there's lots of great courses that you can take online and in person. And um, yeah, it's just a, a great bunch of people. So uh, before we wrap up the show, I, I do also want to talk about something sort of related to what we were just mentioning, and that is uh, aging and and just sort of how we um, handle ourselves as we as we get older. Uh, one of our sponsors uh, that we've been lucky enough to have with us for a few months now is called Inside Tracker, and Inside Tracker has uh, built a number of products around helping us as athletes uh, really kind of maximize our performance as we age, understand our body, understand what it needs, and you know people do age at different speeds. Um, you know, some faster, some slower. I like to think that as we're doing a lot of these uh, these different, um, you know, exploits out in <laughs> ventures and such that we're sort of slowing down the aging process. Um, and so, you know, our birthday may not always correspond to our actual biological age. Inside Trackers developed something called InnerAge 2.0. It's a proprietary AI-driven platform, and it reveals how your body is aging and provides a personalized science-backed action plan to help you get younger from the inside out. Uh, it's all based on blood testing, and I've uh, had mine uh, out there already tested a couple months ago. I think I'm due for my next retest. And a few months to, or a few weeks to a month or so uh, to see how things I've been doing have been changing uh, my inner age. And uh, Inside Tracker really believes that, you know, your best self isn't behind you, it's within you. And by looking at the science of your health and longevity, you can discover the personalized path to living healthier and longer. Um, so if you really want to continue doing what you love uh, with the people you love for the rest of your life, it's time to turn back the clock with inner age 2.0. And for a limited time, Mile 99 listeners can take 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Uh, anything you order in there, including InterAge 2.0, uh, visit insidetracker.com slash mile99, so mile99, and use code mile99 at checkout. You get 20% off. They've got a whole bunch of different types of plans. Uh, some test more um, biomarkers, other tests fewer. Um, and then you get this inner age reading and you can then use their action plan to kind of turn back time uh, and maximize your performance as you uh, as you age. So I'm really excited about it. I'm looking forward to my next test and see if I've done all the right things in my action plan and uh, we'll see from there. So <laughs> I hope that uh, you all try that out. All right, well, I think it's time to wrap things up. What do you think, Jess? We've already made it an hour, which seems just crazy. This is the fastest episode we've ever had. And just like every episode, we're going to end the episode with a real quick rapid fire question quiz. Are you ready, Ken? There we go. Okay. What's your favorite local trail? Oh, uh, Little American River Canyon. How much of it? No, I'm just kidding. The exact I need the exact Strava segments. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, um, it's 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 one of the trails that's on the uh, cool course. It's it's called Little American Canyon. It's a short one that's from the bottom of a waterfall 
that cuts back into uh, where Roby is. The, it's, the trail's real narrow through there. There's a lot of moss on the trees. And in the wet season, you can go back through there. And literally, you can grab a tree and just squeeze it and, and watch the water come out of there. That's where the uh, the newts always show up. And if you That's just right. take one little back trail off of it, it'll drop you right down to Poverty Bar. And go down to Poverty Bar when it's like 25 or 30 degrees in the morning. And it's just beautiful. Get this man some wool and gingies. My goodness, he loves it when it's all <laughs> wet and mucky. Okay, your next one is, what's your favorite post-race meal? Probably hamburger and, and uh, onion rings. I um, that was that was my uh, that was my post-run post-Western States one. The year I I was part of Peter Defty's Vespa program and. Uh, not to plug it too big, but that was a that was an incredible experience. And often you you hit the end of a hundred and you have bad trail mouth and not able to do anything at all. And and uh, but with that program, I was I was going hamburgers and onion rings just a few hours after finishing. I love that. Yum yum yum. A lot of people are like liquid calories only, or give me give me a day and then I'm eating normal again. So that's good to hear. And then, do you have a bucket list race? Probably one of I, I as much as I'm going to go back to Vietnam and run that. There's a, there's a an event up in Thailand that's outside of Chiang Mai that I I really want to go back up. It's part of actually I haven't been there so it's not back up. But I want to go up there. It's um it's part it's UTMB um, um Thailand and it's supposed to just be beautiful. It's actually one of the qualifiers for Western states at the longer distances. I'm not I wouldn't do something like that, but the the terrain and everything is just supposed to be beautiful. And some of my some of my Vietnamese friends actually are going there. It's um I think it's the same weekend as CIM in our lottery. So it's it's coming up in just a couple of weeks. But I have some friends that I met at uh, Vietnam Mountain that are lining up to go there and they're just really excited about it. Nice. You have to get the scoop on everything. And then our final question, the most controversial one, cats or dogs? Got to be cats. Got to be. Do you have any? One. What? One. Abby is, uh, Abby runs the house. She has not adjusted at all to daylight. Say the philosophy. <laughs> so you can drive by our house. And if you need a good shot of Italian roast at like 315 in the morning, no problem. <laughs> We're usually oh. up and making coffee and whatever Abby wants to do. <laughs> Cats, they're like another person in the house. I love it. Well, we've got, we actually went a little bit over an hour. We kind of knew it would happen. You just have the best stories. And we're going to end this episode. And our next episode is another great person that we all know is Mo Bartley. So oh, we're wow. talking to Mo in a couple weeks. And as always, we are so thankful for everyone who comes on the show, who supports us, our pre-order for HAPS, that helps us a lot too. Um, all our Patreon and Venmo supporters. If you're new here, our social media handle on across all platforms is at the mile 99 interview. Uh, we have a website as well with everything listed and older episodes that are awesome. We have lots of content, 82 episodes. We got lots of stuff for anyone. Give us a follow. We thank you guys so much. If you're on our Patreon, hang out. We're going to have our after show. We will see everyone on the trails. Have a good night. Bye. Bye.